0: You're listening to a podcast
1: from BJSM.
0: Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. And it's on the topic of the ultrasound, which is one of the very hot topics that we like to focus on at the journal. I'm delighted to be with Kim Harmon, who's the director of the Sports Medicine Fellowship at the University of Washington, and also with Sean Martin, who is graduated from the U.S. Air Force, and he's on clinical faculty at the Eglin Air Force Base Kim is the immediate past president of AMSSM and Sean is on the MSK ultrasound committee. Welcome, Kim.
1: Thanks for having me, Corinne.
0: Tell the listeners about your use of ultrasound in your primary care sports medicine practice.
1: Well, I started thinking about getting a musculoskeletal ultrasound machine probably about four years ago and I was a little bit hesitant because I wasn't really sure how it would fit into my day-to-day practice and because we teach sports medicine fellows here, I decided to go ahead and get it. And I, I have to tell you, it's, it's really transformed my practice. Um, I use it almost every time I'm in the clinic. I use it significantly to help with diagnosis and patient education and then uh, to do procedures. And so it's really been a g- great addition to my practice.
0: Sean, welcome to the call. And what are you, your thoughts on those points?
2: When we're talking about musculoskeletal ultrasound in clinical practice, truly we're talking about Two categories with some overlap. First category is really going to be using the ultrasound as a tool to aid in your diagnostic acumen. It is certainly something that augments your physical exam and not something that replaces it. It's incredibly helpful to have the patient there in your clinic and to be performing your physical exam and to use the ultrasound to Mm -hmm. further assess and hopefully give them an answer without needing to send them to perhaps another facility. Second one, using the ultrasound to help guide procedures. So now with the use of musculoskeletal ultrasound, we can perform procedures safely with relatively less potential risk of damage to nearby structures that we couldn't perform 10 years ago.
0: And let's go with some specific examples. Share what you're doing in the clinic
1: one of the things that we can do now that we couldn't do before is make sure that our injections are accurate. So if someone um, doesn't respond to, say, a glenohumeral injection for adhesive capsulitis, that may be because you uh, weren't accurate with your injection. And so I routinely use um, ultrasound to do glenohumeral injections. I now do interarticular hip injections in the office. You can also address tendon pathology. And so We're branching out into new treatments like tenotomy, autologous blood, and platelet-rich plasma. And really in those types of technologies, you want to make sure you get the specific part of the tendon.
2: Certainly, if you look at the current literature and if you follow the research closely, this is exactly where a lot of the research is going. For example, there have been several studies that have come out looking at exactly what Kim is talking about, Is the ultrasound improving my ability to accurately perform a procedure? And does a patient respond just as well, worse, or better if I use the ultrasound versus traditional landmark-based procedures? And I think we're just now starting to to break open the iceberg and to see when is it most helpful to use the ultrasound in practice and when is it going to most benefit your patients versus... Potential indication that although may be interesting and academic in nature, it may not result in the best patient
1: oriented outcomes. Most of those studies were done using corticosteroids. We know that the corticosteroid doesn't stay where we put it, it diffuses through tissue planes. And so you don't necessarily have to be accurate. And I think that where you'll really see the divergence in outcomes may be in studies as we start to move towards biologic treatments for tendons.
0: And we might as well just Hit a couple of other specifics when you're using it, uh, Kim. You talked about tenotomy, um, PRP. Just give a couple of specifics that uh, clinicians might be thinking about and, and they can learn from your experience in when you actually use it.
1: We see an awful lot of tenopathy at my clinic here. A typical patient would come in and they would have had um, six months to two years of patellar uh, tendinopathy tenopathy. What you can see in the, in, the, in the tendon is that clear hypochoic area. Um, it's in a part of the tendon, the, the Achilles and the patellar tendon are both very large tendons, and so making sure that when you're doing the treatment that they're actually hitting the pathologic part of the tendon is important. And so when we first started doing biologic treatments here, we started with tenotomy, we moved on to autologous blood, and we got reasonable results with both of those treatments. Um, we've moved on to platelet-rich plasma, but when you do a procedure like that, you need to make sure that your needle isn't exactly the pathologic part. The platelet-rich plasma or the blood is going to stay where you put it. It's going to clot as soon as it gets in there.
2: I think what Kim is describing here is, is really the comprehensive patient encounter. The patient comes in. You know, we take the history and physical. We use the ultrasound to determine exactly where the tendinopathic region is. We can illustrate this to the patient, provide an explanation, as well as a list of treatment options. And then at the same encounter, we can perhaps use a pro-inflammatory injection like uh, Ken is describing. So the patient walks in and walks out with the treatment a lot of times in the same day.
0: Any other non tendon pathologies that uh, you're using it for, Sean?
2: I really, truly think that we're just now starting to see the the plethora of frontiers we can use with musculoskeletal ultrasound. One of the things we're doing very commonly in my clinic is neurolysis or hydrodissection of nerves. So one problem that often plagues athletes as well as the the average musculoskeletal patient is uh, a nerve entrapment. And a lot of times what we can offer these patients, aside from physical therapy, is surgical exploration to try and free the nerve. However, with the use of musculoskeletal ultrasound, what we can now do is track that nerve, find the site of compression, and then release it with nothing more than normal saline and some lidocaine. And we're finding pretty amazing results with patients having near or complete relief of their symptoms with either one, two, or three injections around the nerve to release it. The other things we're using it for is the evacuation of cysts, for example, the Baker cyst. So in essence, in one comprehensive visit, we can take a history and physical, we can use the ultrasound to localize, identify, and even quantify the size of a Baker's cyst and then aspirate the cyst all in a single procedure.
0: One practical question is what do you think on the training issue?
2: Sure. Well, it's in my experience that the, the AMSSM has really taken a leading role in trying to provide several resources and a foundation for musculoskeletal ultrasound training. One of the ways they do this is that they sponsor a couple of courses. Uh, Josh Hackle out at the Andrews Institute, in three days he provides a um, both a beginner ultrasound course and then later on in the year another three days for an advanced ultrasound course. Um, I should be the first to tell you that o- musculoskeletal ultrasound is not a skill you will pick up in a single weekend CME conference and go home and feel adequately comfortable to fully integrate this modality into your practice. What I normally recommend people do is they go to one CME conference and at least get an introduction to musculoskeletal ultrasound and understand its indications and its overall platform and how to use it. Go back to their practice and use it as much as possible and try to integrate it into their normal routine. And then perhaps if they can, go back to another training course to really further modify and augment the skills that they've already acquired. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that currently musculoskeletal ultrasound training is not part of the mandated rrc that's Resident Review Committee requirements, and they're not tested as part of the CAQ testing. But what I think we're seeing here is a wave of popularity moving in the direction of most programs starting to adopt this into their training. And the leader of this movement is the AMSSM. If you go to their website, which is www.amssm.org, they have an entire section dedicated to musculoskeletal ultrasound. What I personally found from talking to people that come out of these conferences is that they felt really comfortable after the conference, but they went back to their practice. Perhaps they bought a machine, and they weren't fully able to truly test themselves without somebody standing over their shoulder and pointing things out to them. So in order to bridge that gap, we've developed a resource by which you can go onto this website and view patient cases and more or less test yourself and your ability to identify pathologic uh, areas of concern. You can identify normal anatomic landmarks, and then you can also view videos of ultrasound-guided procedures.
0: That's absolutely fantastic, and thanks for that brilliant summary. Kim, do you want to add to any of those
1: points? the AMSSM developed a recommended curriculum for fellowships that are looking at um, adding musculoskeletal ultrasound teaching to their fellowship, and this was actually uh, published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine last year, I believe, And, and it's been very helpful in developing our program.
0: And that's flagged on the podcast link, so the listener can catch that and other papers we're talking about here. Sean, any points you want to add at this stage?
2: Well, I often get asked, people how to get started, and my recommendations are always the same. There's really two websites that people need to get familiar with. The first one is from the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine. That's the www.aiun.org. It's a great place to go to print out free PDFs that tell you what areas you should be ultrasounding when it comes to shoulder, like Kim just mentioned, how to place the patient in the proper position to achieve that image. Now, to add to that material, there's the European Society of Musculoskeletal Radiology, that's www.essr.org. And you can also print out free PDFs at this website that augment the AIUM information. And then from there, I would recommend that you try to find a CME conference that offers exactly what you're looking for. The CME conferences, they will have any combination of didactics, hands on Musculoskeletal Ultrasound Practice, and or cadaver labs. My personal recommendation is to find one that has a little bit of all three. And what you wanna look for is as small groups as possible and as much time as possible when you're practicing with the ultrasound in the small group sessions of these conferences. Once you do settle on a machine and it into practice, try as hard as you can to implement it as often as possible while taking into account that, you know, there's some research that is still ongoing over whether or not using the ultrasound in in various indications is is truly value-added. But more importantly, you're adding it to your practice to try to improve your own ability to scan.
0: And we might as well tackle that uh, instrument question, which instrument do you use. Uh, BJSM doesn't get any funding for any ultrasound uh, manufacturer. What do you have and what do you suggest?
1: The two machines that have most penetrated the musculoskeletal market are the GE, uh, Logic E, and the Sonosite, And they're both uh, great machines. I've used them both. I personally have a SonaSight. Um I think that the du- durability is a real benefit, particularly if you're going to be taking it um, to a training room setting or I'd actually travel with it um, with the teams, which is very, very nice. Um, I think that the Sonosite is a little bit, Um, easier to use because some of the settings are on automatic. The GE, because it's not quite as automatic, has a little bit more flexibility in it. It's similar image quality. They're both very, very good machines. Um, Other machines would be Biosound, which is, uh, again, a cart-based machine. It does very good in high-frequency range, um, so that means mostly things that you'd be looking at on the surface. And then the Zonaire is another machine that that, uh, seems to be making... Inroads um, in the musculoskeletal market, but those are all laptop-like machines, which are different, oftentimes, from the cart-based systems that you'll see uh, at a radiologist. They're more portable and uh, a little bit more flexible. And really, the quality over the last 10 years has increased uh, with images, and so they're very, very nice images.
0: And you have brought up the issue of sideline imaging, taking the cart with you, taking the laptop with you. And we touched on that in a previous podcast that we'll highlight. A couple of thoughts on using it on the sideline, Kim?
1: And more than the sideline, what I would say is that we use it in the training room. And so uh, we'll use it to see if there's a hematoma that we can aspirate. Um, we'll use it to look at muscle tears. We will use it uh, we, we use it every game. We use it to do different nerve blocks that we may uh, need to do. And um, it's been very helpful the other thing that people have talked about using it on the sideline is to look for a pneumothorax. So if you're covering a uh, football game and somebody's having some difficulty breathing, you can uh, potentially see that pathology. And so I found it very, very helpful. In fact, I have a couple of players that are so dedicated uh, to the machine that they make sure that I have it before we get on the plane. They're like, you got that machine, don't you, Doc?
2: The other thing w- that I would add to what Kim said is we're using a lot for dynamic assessments. For example, I was at a baseball game in the spring, and we were fairly confident that uh, our pitcher blew out of his UCL. And we were actually able to dynamically assess, comparing his, his pitching side, or his dominant side, I should say, versus his non dominant side, and make the diagnosis that, yes, quite likely you do have increased gapping on this side, and quite likely you did rupture your UCL. Other than that, the, the indications we found is also with you know, acute quad contusions, acute tendon ruptures acute muscle strains, effusions, making a dynamic instant assessment over whether or not they are present or not present before we even take the patient away from the field.
1: One of our star players had had a helmet to the quad, had a bad helmet or bad quad contusion, was unable really uh, to walk. I had just gotten the ultrasound machine in our training room and I said, hey, let me let me just take a look at your leg with this thing. And we saw a very, very large hematoma on the ultrasound. So uh, we elected to drain it, and we took out 85 cc of sort of serosanguinous fluid. He hopped up off the table and said, wow, that feels great. He went out and practiced that day. We drained another 25 cc Friday night before the game, and he he played terrific. Really was literally a game changer for us in that, in that instance.
0: The people who don't know you both as well as I do, they may just need to be reminded that we do do all this in conjunction with radiologists and AMSSM has worked closely with radiologists in organizing curriculum. So, Kim, that might be something for you to summarize for the listener who isn't aware of that background.
1: What I've found in my practice is that musculoskeletal ultrasound tends for me to be more of a point-of-care technology than um, a, a, a something where I'd send somebody off to get a diagnostic image. But oftentimes... Um, the conferences with the radiologists have been very helpful to decide what's pathologic and what's a normal variant.
0: And Sean, I'm sure you had similar experience at the Air Force.
2: Absolutely. So, so collaborating with the radiologists is, is truly what has made us able to do this because we don't always know what we're looking at completely, and we have to actually consult the radiologist to help us, and, and vice versa. The other great relationship that is, that is has really grown as a result of our adopting of muscle cell ultrasound is that with our orthopedists, It's not uncommon that I get consulted from the orthopedist to perform a ultrasound guided hip injection or a ultrasound glenohumeral injection for arthrogram uh, so that they know that they can have it done quickly and that it's accurate because I saw exactly where it went. Uh, the other thing is our orthopedists have really grown incredibly in favor of musculoskeletal ultrasound in our clinical practice because we can diagnose dynamically tendon pathology and treat them in the office, oftentimes saving the patient a surgery and freeing up the orthopedist to, to use your operating room for other indications.
0: Okay, so this really is a collaborative experience, and there are going to be potential challenges in credentialing, but AMSSM is well-organized and is anticipating this. So why don't you share your thoughts, Kim?
1: Well, there's a couple of different things with credentialing. Um, You can be credentialed so that insurance companies will pay you, but many people have to be credentialed at their institutions so that they're able to perform um, these ultrasound procedures. And to be credentialed, you have to demonstrate some level of competency. Right now, there's no um, widely agreed-upon Sort of basis. However, probably the best thing we have is some guidelines from the American Institute of Musculoskeletal Ultrasound. And what they currently recommend is 40 hours of CME and doing 150 musculoskeletal exams. And then most institutions um, will work off those guidelines to make their own um, specific credentialing recommendations.
0: Thanks, Kim. And I'm going to say thanks to you for being on this podcast today. I'm going to say thanks to Sean for your work on organising this today in SSM and your ongoing contribution to the education that we'll support through BJSM. You've been listening to this BJSM podcast with Kim Harmon and with Sean Martin. You can also follow other podcasts on the homepage and get updates on BJSM on our blog. A quick way to keep a track of BJSM updates is via Twitter, which is at bjsm underscore bmj thanks for listening
1: for more information about this program and other bmj group podcasts please visit bmj.com